much does identity drive our point of view and our right to assert it? Kwame Anthony Appiah will be here to discuss his latest book, The Lies That Bind. Why are college students today so unprepared for life on campus, and what are the implications for their lives afterward? Jonathan Haidt will be here to talk about his new book, The Coddling of the American Mind. Alexander Alter will give us an update from the publishing world, plus we'll talk about what we and the wider world are reading. This is the Book Review Podcast from the New York Times. I'm Pamela Paul. Kwame Anthony Abia joins us now. He is the ethicist column for the New York Times Magazine, and his latest book is called The Lies That Bind, Rethinking Identity. Anthony, thanks for being here. It's very good to be here. To what extent does identity currently shape our social, cultural, and political discourse? I think very deeply, and that's not terribly new. I think it's been doing it for a long time. Indeed, if you take nationality to be a kind of identity and nationalism to be a kind of politics, then we've been doing a kind of identity politics ever since the beginning of the republic. But I think when people talk about the new rise of identity, Mm -hmm. what they have in mind is that a whole bunch of other identities, which were not widely regarded as salient to politics, say in the middle of the 20th century, like race, gender, sexual orientation, maybe religion to some extent, have kind of come to the center of of our politics in an interesting way. I, I think it's a mistake to suggest that we could do politics without identity, as mm-hmm. I said. We're a nation. We could only do things together if we care about being Americans. And that's an identity. What I think people are maybe have a case we're complaining about is is when we use identities to to ill purpose. But, right. but but using them at all, I think it's there's no point in being against against using them at all. But it has shifted in terms of the way we conceive of our identity. You have this great early quote from Middlemarch. Maybe <laughs> you could share how identity was thought of during the period of George Eliot's novel. There are two important points. One is that the very word identity just doesn't have this meaning until the 1950s. Mm-hmm. I, I looked for it in sort of social theorizing of the period before the Second World War in English. Can't find it. And also, therefore, of course, in ordinary conversation, it must have had different meanings. And if you read something like Middlemarch, when when a character talks about her identity being shifted, what she's talking about is something intensely personal. She's not talking about as a woman or, right. or as a member of the middle classes or as anything. She's just talking about her own sense of displacement because she's discovered that the man she's in love with is in love with somebody else. This new sense of identity is, is essentially a post-war, post-Second World War phenomenon. And I think it's as much as anything else due to the rise of a kind of movement in modern sociology, which focuses on these things, the things that we now take to be obvious, race, gender, sexual orientation, religion, nationality, and maybe some others like professional identities, identities as, as, as artists and as um, maybe as bankers and so on. These, are, these all seem terribly important to our social life. Now, I think it's true that they are. I think they always were important. So the the thing that's changed isn't that they've come to be there. Mm-hmm. It's that we've come to recognize them and think about them and be more explicit in our thinking about them. You grew up in the UK, right, where the primary identifiers have sort of long been class, right, above all. I mean, what happened in the 1950s in the post-war period in the UK and here in the US that changed that conception of identity and sort of like what counted the most? So I think one thing about the decline in the middle of the 20th century, not just here and in Britain, but in much of Europe, 
of class politics was the success of the left and the liberal left in raising the circumstances of the poorest part of the population mm-hmm. in the 1950s. So it sort of equalized things. Things are being equalized. The post-war Labour government for the first time in England, produced universal secondary education, created a healthcare system, the National Health Service, increased taxes on the very rich, strengthened the social welfare system. And that meant that the the poorest people were now being lifted up. And so their preoccupation, their reasonable preoccupation with politics as a source of lifting them up economically, somewhat declined because they were now doing okay. Working people had indoor toilets, they had televisions, They had fridges. All of these are new things in the 1950s. So I think that's one of the reasons. And then in the 60s, of course, in part, I think because of this, though there is a strong left in the 60s, and though that left is somewhat preoccupied with class, there's the rise of women's politics, of of gender politics. Again, in the early 20th century, both Britain and the United States had given women the vote. So women had come into politics only in the 20th century. But also, of course, in the United States, the politics of black consciousness and and African-American identity. And then in the late 60s, LGBT, what we now call LGBT Mm -hmm. identities, gay politics, all of these came to be important, I think, because people recognized that the state could do something for them and also that the state had been doing something against them. Women had been inferiorized and kept out of the world of the public by the law, by the state, as well as by custom. People had been kept, black people had been kept down because there were laws limiting where they could live. The great growth in public housing in the United States after the Second War was largely limited to white people because those things, because of deals with the Southern Democrats, were actually closed to black people and so on. So then people realized, well, the state is holding us back. Obviously, gay people were not only stigmatized, but gay sex was criminal. And so on. So I think people thought, well, we have to draw the attention of the state. We have to get engaged in politics. And then in culture, it seems that, and I and I'm wondering when you would date this too, and and how it would relate to this rise of identity and identity politics. This shift from a kind of melting pot ideal, which seemed to predominate at least you know in the American school system through the 70s and even into the 80s, to this to the multicultural ideal. Yes, I, I, that's that is very interesting, and there are lots of theories about why that happened. It's there's no doubt that it did happen, and one of the things you might say, and I pointed this out years ago in a review in the New York Review of Books, is that as these ethno-racial identities in the United States got thinner, somehow the rise in their interest in them got richer. So mm-hmm. as as African Americans are somewhat being equalized in the economy, coming into the to the old white bastions of privilege, Harvard and so on, and and, and, um, banking and and law, just at that moment that there's a kind of increasing preoccupation with, uh, as it were, difference. Similarly, you know, the first generation of Jewish and uh, Italian Catholic uh, uh, migrants, they wanted their kids to become Americans as fast as possible. Their grandchildren, who didn't speak Italian, ate pasta, but then everybody eats pasta, but also ate all the things everybody else ate, and so on, they suddenly become preoccupied with. And I think there's this paradox that as it's sort of, as it's slipping away, people want to grab onto it. So I think that's one of the things that happened. I think, I mean, of course, there are good, there were good things in in the multicultural movement. It was important to uh, reshape our 
textbooks to recognize more accurately the actual history of the United States, the actual roles of immigrants and the black people, which had been downplayed in a way that just distorts our history. And, and there the argument is the story wasn't true, so you need to tell a true story. Mm -hmm. But I think in sort of encouraging people to, to think of themselves as separate, feeling that you're sort of not a real American unless you're a hyphenated American, I think that's uh, that wasn't a terribly good idea. I don't mean there aren't hyphenated Americans. Clearly, if you're like me, an immigrant from somewhere else, you do have a double sense of identity. I'm deeply committed to my Americanness. I love this country, even though I don't love its president. But I also have affiliations in other places. And lots of people are like that. But a lot of people aren't like that. And that's fine, too. And I think the idea that everybody has to have that was a mistake. When you go looking at this timeline, you talked about the 1950s and the kind of economic changes and then in the 60s, with the rise of the sort of civil rights movement. And we're now talking about the 70s. And when you get to the 80s, then it seems to me you have another sort of shift, which is the rise of political correctness and into the early 90s. And, you know, my own experience coming from what I thought of, at least as the, at the time, as the sort of epicenter of political correctness, which was Brown University in the early 90s. There was a popular newspaper cartoonist, Jeff Schessel, now a, uh, a journalist, had a character in this comic strip he did called PC Man. And I'm curious, like, to what extent was that whole politically correct movement related to this, to the rise of identity politics? Well, I think it must have been, and obviously it was meant to be uh, the... the like many labels, politically correct is 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 a label put on you by your enemies. Nobody claims to be politically correct. And the objection was to the idea, well, I think to a bunch of ideas. One idea was that you had to be incredibly sensitive uh, about mentioning anything that had to do with identity. That's a bad thing, especially in universities, because universities are places where you're supposed to be able to think about anything, and anybody's supposed to be thinking about anything. One of the joys of being, as I was in the early 80s uh, in the African-American Studies program at Yale, was that we were very definitely committed to a view in which our task was to teach all the kids at Yale, not just the black kids, and our colleagues, we didn't want just black colleagues, we wanted the best scholars, the people who best right. understood the, the questions. On the other hand, I think that you can go overboard in criticizing political correctness because the conversation intelligent, useful, rational, educational conversation does depend upon people not upsetting each other too much. Uh, adrenaline is very bad for clear thought. And so it's, it's reasonable, I think, to worry about uh, sort of courtesy and so on. It's, and it's reasonable to worry about insensitivity. I myself think that when you start talking about microaggressions, while that might be a useful concept in sociology, as a as a term for everyday discourse and for criticizing other people's behavior, I think it's unhelpful. It's sort of it's sort of medicalizing. It's treating it as a kind of pathology, psychopathology. And if people are rude, as they often are, I think the right thing to do, especially if they're rude or upsetting unintentionally, I think the right thing to do is to try gently to point out to them why what they've done. Is, is upsetting and to urge them not to do it again. When people are intentionally rude, it's perfectly appropriate to be indignant at them, perfectly appropriate to be angry at them. Um, courtesy matters. Social life depends upon courtesies. But I don't think uh, when people are sort of accidentally upsetting, uh, we should do more than try to get them to see why they're upsetting and, the, and to give them the right to say, well, maybe you don't have the right to be upset about that. Maybe you're responding in a way that might legitimately be called hyper 
hypersensitive. You wrote an opinion piece for The Times a few weeks ago in which you started off um, with a hypothetical person, Joe, speaking as a white man, et cetera, and and, and talking about how self-identifying at the beginning of a statement can either confer authority or on the flip side can confer humility, as in I have no right to say this because I'm not part of X group, however I think, um, and you know, take it as you will. So it's going to seem hypocritical, but I want to actually go directly to your experience because you talk, you open your own book talking about the way that you might be identified or you might self-identify. Can you talk a little bit about your background and about the limitations of thinking about yourself as, as part of a group? Well, I'm probably now more like more people in the world than I was when I was growing up. That mm-hmm. is because like the president the, the last president my my father was an african and my mother was a white woman my mother was english or she would have said a woman from the west country and my father was ghanaian or as he would have said an asante uh, from from the center of ghana from the old empire at the heart of ghana and we grew up between those two places my sisters and i i was actually born in london because my father was still a law student when i was born but my sisters were all born in, near the place we grew up and i would say that the first thing I would say always about this experience is it, lots of people had bad experiences in the 1950s and 60s who came from so-called mixed-race marriages. We did not. And that's because we were protected by another dimension of our identity, which was we were from the ruling class in both places. My my grandfather was Chancellor of the Exchequer. My great-grandfather was Labour leader of the House of Lords. My uh, uncle... Um, well, my great uncle, when I was a child, was the king of Ashanti, and then my uncle was succeeded him. And there was a newspaper clipping when you were when you were born. Yes, yes. Oh, I mean, in fact, we got uh, the my my birth, like my parents' marriage, got very wide coverage all over the world. Most of, much of it unfriendly. I mean, you, you can imagine what the South African newspapers had to say about mm-hmm. the, the British ruling class allowing an African, or what in somebody in the South African parliament called a blanket native, uh, to to marry the daughter of, of, of an English uh, senior English politician. But um, so we were protected, I think, very much by by a very, also by the fact that both our families, who could have been different about, difficult about this, were in fact very loving people. Only one uh, only one member of my mother's English family behaved badly about my parents' wedding, and he was the one who chose to emigrate to South Africa, so you can tell what his views were. Mm-hmm. But the rest of the family, many of whom were quite socially conservative, nevertheless were extremely kind and generous to us as children. So so this is an odd combination, obviously. Not many people are related both to an African monarch and to a member of the of the British cabinet and so on. And it means, A, that I look in a way that's perhaps hard to locate. I think I look, if, if I were to guess what most people see when they see me, they probably see someone who they guess is South Asian, sort of Indian looking, because I don't have the kind of curl, dark, you know, tight curls that many, many people have in Africa, and, and brown. But I think that means that for me, it's never seemed terribly helpful to tell people to answer the question, what race are you in a sort of one word way? In the United States, I'm black because in America, you're black if you have one African or African-American parent, apparently. Mm -hmm. So I'm not going to, it would be silly to deny that. But I think it's also not very helpful. What does it tell you about me? It doesn't tell you very much. I didn't grow up here. Uh, My experience of racism as a child was entirely, was not very, I didn't experience much racism as a child. But insofar as I did, it would have been in England, which is a very different racial uh, atmosphere from the United States. So I think, I suppose I was raised as someone for whom the sort of the easy racial label wasn't going to be very good. 
in explaining who I am. I'm a gay man. I think that that means very different things in Ghana and England and uh, in England then and in England now and in the United States then and now. So that again, you know, that's a thing. With, that's a very much a shifting meaning. Uh, lots of young people today who are um, who have same-sex attractions think gay is a bit of a limiting label. I'm, right. I'm happy to have them think that. The people I think should be able to work out their own relation to these labels. But again, you know, I don't know how helpful it is for me. Well, just that idea that, that, as you say, these identities themselves are shifting in terms of how we conceive of them seems to make it problematic that we should so closely rely on identity as some kind of way of circumscribing our yes. discourse. Right. So I think, I mean, as I say, I, I want to begin by admitting that my relation to many of these identities is a bit peculiar because I'm, 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 I have this sort of slightly odd background. But, and I'm now an American, you know, that's another thing. What, what nationality am I? Well, I'm an American. When I, sometimes when I go through the, um, through immigration in the United Kingdom, they look at my birth, my passport and they say, you were born in London. Why aren't you traveling on a British passport? And I say, because I'm an American. And they say, oh, they sort of raise their eyebrows at me, <laughs> as if I'm sort of trying to make a point, but it's true. So I think, yes, very often identities are not, the, the identity labels we use tell you much less than you might think. One doesn't want to lose track of the fact, and the book is called The Lies That Bind, that identities can be useful for people and that there are lots of things, even in my life, where identities are sources of useful simplification. I go to the men's section of clothing stores. If I didn't know that I was a man, I couldn't do that. Mm -hmm. Of course, that's only necessary because we have different ideas about how men and women should dress. I don't happen to think there's anything deeply wrong with that, but no doubt in generations to come, people will have arguments about that. But right now, it's how things are and it simplifies my life. I think there are other kinds of identities which, if you kind of invest in them, can be deeply rewarding. That's true of religious identities. But what's so interesting is that right now, we seem so focused on identity at a time when the so many aspects of identity seem to be in flux from race because there are so many gradations and, and mixes in terms of race in creed because there are, you know, more and more in this country and elsewhere in the Western world, people not identifying with a given denomination or organized religion country, a time when you have people often, you know, between borders immigrating and even gender, which we now think of as much more fluid than we ever did. I mean, is it because of those shifts that we're sort of latching on so determinedly to these labels? So one reason for latching onto them is to resist the shifts, right? Mm -hmm. There are people who don't like lots of these shifts. Some poor chap on uh, was found on television, I think, the other day or maybe on the web somewhere, saying that he wanted to do ethnic cleansing of the United States, that he wanted to get rid of black and and uh, Hispanic people. He, he wasn't suggesting killing them. He was suggesting that they should go elsewhere. So there are these people who who sort of see the country shifting in its demography and don't like it. And so, so they're sort of holding on in that case to a kind of white identity. But yes, I think I think the the instability of identities, uh, like lots of other forms of instability, it can be disturbing for people. And so they want to hold on to things. The trouble is that doesn't, it's not going to work. Just take religion, which you mentioned, I think is a 
Very, very good example here. In the 1950s in the United States, it was informative to be told that someone was a Catholic. Mm -hmm. It would have predicted that they would be going, you could tell which church they were going to go to because it would be the local Catholic church. Um, it might be different for Irish Catholics and Polish Catholics, but still, right. they, would have, they would have gone. You know, you could have known that. Now, as Robert Putnam has pointed out, most American families are in fact multi-religious. That is, most of us have aunts, uncles, cousins who are not whatever we are if we're anything. That wasn't true in the past. And so there was much more of a kind of coherent sense of what it meant to be a Catholic mm -hmm. or a Baptist or an Episcopalian or a Methodist or Jewish. I mean, even if even if Judaism is, is, is sort of divided among a small number of Reform, Orthodox, Conservative and so on. And then arguments within that about whether it's a religion or and or an ethnicity and. Right. So, and and that again, this this is very strikingly true in the Jewish case that that we use the Jewish both as a sort of ethnonym, as a name for a kind of ethnicity, and also obviously as the name of a of one of the uh, Abrahamic traditions or the, the founding Abrahamic tradition. The same is true of Mormonism. Lots of people who are no longer believing, who were raised Mormon, will tell you that they feel Mormon. And actually, Akhil Bilgrami, who's a wonderful philosopher who teaches up at Columbia, wrote a wonderful paper once called What is a Muslim? in which he said, I don't believe in God, but I grew up in India as a Muslim and, and I have a Muslim identity. So I think religious identities are like that. I suppose if I'm anything religiously, I suppose I'd have to say that I was, since I went to Anglican Episcopalian schools, that I'm sort of, a, I'm a, as it were, a post-Episcopalian. Right. But it seems that even when the identities are absolute, and this was the the great example you opened your opinion piece with, this hypothetical Joe describing himself as a straight white man. That could describe someone, as you said, with, you know, a man bun working at a food co-op in Brooklyn, or it could be someone wearing a MAGA hat out in, you know, Michigan. Yes. And, and so that it really doesn't tell you anything at all. I think especially in the domain of politics, actually, it's really unhelpful to, uh, that is to say, it's not very predictive. Look, all of these labels are somewhat predictive. Mm -hmm. I mean, otherwise they wouldn't have any grip on us at all. But they're not as predictive as we normally assume them to be. And that's in part because of something I talk about in the book, which is our tendency towards what psychologists call essentialism, which is the tendency to think that once you've identified a group, there's some deep inner thing that they all have in common that explains why they're all straight or male or white. And, you know, the great lesson of social science and of, of biology in the, in the last hundred years is that that isn't how these things work. They work in different ways. They do not derive from some deep inner something that explains why all the men are men and all the, all the women are women or all the blacks are blacks and all the whites are whites. It's much more complex than that. And as a result, in lots of cases, you'll just get things wrong if you work with simple generalizations about identity groups. In the introduction to your book, you say that every identity has its own distinctive misconception. Give us just one example of how that works. Well, I think the, dis the distinctive misconception in relation to religion is something that you hear all the time, which is what, what I call, I, I didn't invent this term, scriptural essentialism. The idea that religions are defined by their books and that if something is in the book, the religion is stuck with it forever. Now, look. It's like originalism. Originalism in, in relation to the concept. It's kind of a version of originalism. And in fact, originalism somewhat derives, I think, from this way of thinking about the Bible. Right. But look, it's very clear in Leviticus that you ought to stone adulterers. 
as far as I know, there's no society which is predominantly Christian, no society, Israel, predominantly Jewish, believes that that's something we should do today. It's very, very clear. It's not one of the obscure things in, in the book. It's quite clear. Now, of course, Christians will say that Jesus Christ was offered the opportunity to stone someone to death right. and said, he, and said uh, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. And um, since he was the only person around who was without sin and since he refused to do so, they can, you can infer from that, I suppose, that Jesus didn't think this was a very good idea. But, but Jesus never says he rejects the law of Moses. In fact, he says he came to fulfill the law of Moses. I think that just shows that a sort of straightforward, flat-footed reading of what it says in the text is never going to determine what people do. There are lots of other examples of this, but that seems to me a good and simple one. So when people say that because this is also part of Muslim tradition, the the tradition of Sharia, Sharia that therefore, as it were, we, we can't allow Muslims around because they're always going to be stoning adulterers, I think we have to say, well, if that were true, then we should have excluded Christians at a time when some of them believed in that too. And it, what happened instead was Christianity changed. Now, I realize that our country is full of people of, of many faiths who don't like to recognize the way in which their traditions are historical. They want to say we're doing it just the way we did at the beginning. I'm not going to get into their traditions and argue with them about that. Mm -hmm. But I am going to say that looking from the outside, it's perfectly clear that that is not true in any interesting case. It isn't even true of the Mormons who have recently come to us. Uh, they're only a couple hundred years old because, uh, for example, their current attitudes to black people, which are positive and they do lots of missionary work in Africa. In fact, there's a Mormon temple in the capital of Ghana now. Mm -hmm. They used to be straight racist in their, in their theology. Now, I don't know whether modern Mormons are going to be upset by my pointing this out, and maybe they want to say that it was always a mistake in Mormonism, and maybe in some sense that's true. But my, the fact is that from the outside, all of these traditions look like changing things. And I think, frankly, since I have some respect for religion, but that's a good thing. I mm -hmm. think religion should adapt to the world. We learn things. The, the, the traditional Christian way of putting this, I suppose, would be to say that I believe in continuing revelation. But um, well, I think the right thing to say is that religions are important, but they're only going to help us mm -hmm. if we recognize that they have this built-in flexibility. One way that I'm assuming that you self-identify as is as a philosopher. And I'm curious how that training, that way of thinking informs the way you look at this subject that might be different from the way, say, a historian might approach it. That's a great question. And I think it's a complicated one because the tradition I was actually raised in in philosophy was relatively unhistorically minded. It wasn't interested in answering conceptual questions in the history of concepts. I have come to see, as a result of being interested in these social concepts, that there just isn't any way to understand them without some history. Now, I didn't invent that thought. It's a central thought in the work of Michel Foucault. Uh, and his English uh, disciple, Ian Hacking, was one of my teachers mm -hmm. at Cambridge. But I think, nevertheless, despite that, I think the sort of the care and concern for parsing arguments and for making conceptual distinctions, which not in order to be sort of bossy and fussy, but because they matter or where they matter. And maybe to when I'm writing as I am in this book for, for the intelligent general reader, 
not, not pushing that too hard, but knowing that in the background I've done the work of, of making the distinctions and also recognizing the places where there aren't sharp distinctions and where it's silly to try to insist that there's a good answer to the question, what is she really, about every person's race. There are just people, I have, look, I have, one of the blessings of my life is that I have lots of wonderful nephews and nieces and now uh, two, um, two, two great nephews and one great niece. Picking at random, the great niece is half Russian and her father is uh, half Norwegian and half Anglo-Ghanaian. What race is this child? I have no idea what a sensible answer is to that question. And I think that once you've told that story, you can see why there isn't a sensible answer to that question. I have three nephews whose father is Norwegian, and one of them is uh, about my color, and one of them is about your color, blonde and, and uh, has blue-gray eyes. Uh, they're brothers, full brothers. They have the same father and the same mother. I suppose they would be differently racially categorized in some places. Certainly they would in Brazil. But what's the point of that? You know. So I think... I think there's a sort of tendency among analytic philosophers to want to sort of pretend that all questions are sharp. I think that's gone away. I think we're, we're, we recognize now that, that that was a mistake. We recognize what Aristotle recognized at the beginning of the subject, which is that he, what he says in the Nicomachean Ethics is that, is that most generalizations in ethics are true for the most part. Well, I self-identify, I have to point out to you, as green-eyed, although I recognize that okay. that's probably <laughs> probably wrong. This is so interesting. So many other questions I want to ask you, but they are at least discussed in the book. The book, again, is called The Lies That Bind, Rethinking Identity by Kwame Anthony Appiah. Anthony, thank you so much for being here. It's been great. Very nice to talk to you. So here's a request for our listeners. I get lots of feedback from you, some complaints, lots of kind words. Really appreciate it. You can always reach me directly at books at nytimes.com. I will write back. But you can also, if you feel moved to do so, review us on any platform where you download the podcast, whether that's iTunes or Stitcher or Google Play or somewhere else. Please feel free to review us and, of course, email us at any time. Jonathan Haidt joins us now. He has co-written a book with Greg Lukianoff called The Coddling of the American Mind, How Good Intentions and Bad Ideas Are Setting Up a Generation for Failure. Jonathan, thanks so much for being here. My pleasure, Pamela. So I'm asking you a little bit to speak for you and for your co-author, but let's talk about the, the, your different backgrounds and how that how you came together and how those backgrounds sort of created the approach for this book. So Greg is a First Amendment lawyer. You are a social psychologist by training and a professor at NYU's Stern School of Business. So why the two of you writing this book? We each saw a problem in different ways, and then we each had different different backgrounds that allowed us to contribute to the analysis of it. So the, the short version of, of each of the two threads is that Greg runs the Foundation for Individual Rights and in Education. He's been working on free speech issues, all the, all the ways that universities clamp down on speech or punish speech, often to cover their own uh, uh, legal liabilities, let's say. And so for a long time, it was usually the administrators who were the trouble, and it was never the students. But starting around 2013, Greg started noticing students asking for administrators or professors to protect them from words, books, speakers, ideas, claiming that these things would be harmful, traumatic even. And 
Greg, who is prone to depression and who had had some terrible depression uh, episodes, which he writes about in the book, and he learned how to do CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, in which you learn to challenge emotional reasoning and catastrophizing and all these, all these cognitive distortions. And what Greg saw is that the students on many campuses were engaging in exactly the same distortions that he had learned to not do when they would say, oh, if, you know, if this person speaks, it will lead to you know, death and, and uh, you know, uh, terrible consequences. So Greg thought this was strange and he came to talk to me because I'm a, a social psychologist and he, he liked my book, The Happiness Hypothesis, where I talked about CBT and said, John, the, Here's what I think is going on. And I said, oh, my God, Greg, that is brilliant because that explained what was happening to me. I had just moved to NYU from the University of Virginia. And in teaching my courses in the 2013 to 2014 academic year, I showed the same videos I've always shown. I gave the same lessons I've always given. But I was reported to the dean twice. The students emailed me to complain about the dean and demand that he do something. Uh, they took offense to something I was saying. One student accused me of, of uh, in presenting a social psychology study about the Milgram experiment of saying the Nazis were okay. Like, no, 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 the whole, the whole point. Anyway, I don't want to go into it. But the point is um, um, that it seemed like students were not giving anyone the benefit of the doubt. Some said, again, this is just a small number. Some students were almost looking to, to uh, jump on you and, and, and attack you. So it was very strange, but Greg's uh, story made sense of it. So I said, yes, let's do it. We worked together on this um, essay. We sent it to the Atlantic. It came out in August of 2015. And then all hell broke loose on campus the following Halloween. So, you know, we wrote this before all the student protests right. that began at Yale. This was the Erica Christakis, Nicholas Christakis, the Halloween costume. Exactly. The possibility that someone might wear an offensive costume, even though as far as I know, nobody did. It's interesting because the CBT analogy, it's sort of similar to physical therapy, where if you have an injury, you can compensate for it by using other muscles, which will not address the problem. Right. And then probably create new problems. Or you can do the physical therapy, which requires you to do very hard exercises that cause pain, but that ultimately strengthen you. That's right. So in, in any activity, I think you have to think, what is the game that we're playing here? What are we really trying to do? And, and I think three of the games that I, common, that I see commonly being played at cross-purposes are the help people game, where you try to do what's really best for them, the truth game, where you try to figure out what's really happening, and the victory game, where you try to defeat the other side at all costs, mm -hmm. and the ends justify the means. And universities are supposed to be about the truth game. But as we've had more and more people playing the victory game, namely bringing in the, 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 the general left-right battle that is raging in our country, the more that is brought into the truth game, the more it corrupts it and the more it becomes very difficult to do open-ended inquiry. I mean, something clearly has changed. I went to college in the early 90s and I went to Brown, which I mentioned in, in my earlier conversation with Anthony Appiah, was sort of, I thought, the epicenter of political correctness. And yet, when then Justice Anthony Scalia was invited to campus, there were no there was no significant protest, if there was any at all, about the fact that he was coming. If anything, even... That If anything, the students were sort of relishing the idea of arguing back. They were looking forward to wrestling with him intellectually. And that's not the case now. What happened? That's right. 
Yeah, so it's a fascinating social science puzzle. I mean, the way that I think about it, it's like, you know, imagine you have a piece of paper on your desk and it's been there, you know, for years and years. And then suddenly one day it bursts into flames. Like, what? You know, how did that happen? And, and then you notice, oh, I've got all these crystals on my, on my window, and I see all these different rays of light coming in. And what's happened is beginning around 2013, 2014, 2015, sometime in there, a whole bunch of different rays of light began converging on campus, where back in the 90s, yeah, Brown was really far left, and that could be one ray, but just having a very left-leaning campus isn't going to cause people to freak out. If you add in the new idea that people are fragile and that if Scalia were to talk, this would not just be offensive to the black students or the gay students or whatever student or whatever uh, groups can take offense at Scalia. It's not just that it's offensive, it's that it's harmful to them, that mm-hmm. it will traumatize them. That's a new idea. I'm sure that was not there when you were in college because this we have not seen until around 2013. It what? comes onto campus. How did that happen in 2013? There's a generally rising familiarity of young people with psychotherapy, uh, taking psychiatric drugs, uh, the language of depression, anxiety. So that's been growing. And that's not, just not necessarily a bad thing. You know, we want our, our students to be psychologically informed and to get treatment if they need it. But there is a fairly sharp break, a really surprisingly sharp demographic break at birth year 1995, just as there was in birth year 1946. The people born in 46 are, are, are somewhat different than those born in 44, 43. Well, in 1995 is the first year of, of birth, the first birth year in which when those kids became teenagers, the 13, 14, they had access to Facebook and social media. Mm-hmm. The millennials all got it when they were in college or later. You know, the Internet doesn't mess up your social relationships, but social media changes things really, really drastically. So for, there's a, for a variety of reasons, kids born in 1995 and after are different. Uh, Gene Twenge calls them iGen, or many people know them as Gen Z, but mm-hmm. they are not millennials. But I wouldn't so much blame the, the parents in this case. It's not that the parents change. It's that two things change. One is they got access to social media, which puts them on a much more defensive footing, especially the girls, teenage girls can bully each other. They use social media to bully each other much more than the boys do, and they use it for social comparison much more than the boys do. So the arrival of social media has just devastated the mental health of teenage girls. And the, the graphs that we have in the book, in Chapter 7 of our book, are stunning. I mean, they're terrifying. The, the, uh, the suicide rate is up uh, 80 to 100 percent, depending on your baseline for teenage girls. The anxiety and depression rates are way, way mm-hmm. up. So that's one big change. Um, and so those kids begin arriving, uh, iGen begins arriving on campus exactly in 2013. So the campus culture changes between 2013 and 2017. It, the campus culture is changed. And that's exactly the years that iGen arrives. So you, this is one of your, the first of your, what you called three bad ideas, the untruth of fragility, that what doesn't kill you makes you weaker rather than 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 stronger. But it's interesting because there seems to be a kind of desire to have your cake but eat it too, in that on the one hand, people don't want to hear about exclusion, oppression, racism, sexism, because those things are painful. And on the other hand, there's the desire for a greater recognition of those things, which then means focusing on exactly that, which will upset the listener. I mean, how are those reconciled? So you have to look at what are we trying to do on campus? What we're trying to do is something very special and very difficult. And 
So what's special about it is you have to create a, a very different kind of community in order to pursue truth. You have to be willing to be challenged. You have to agree to challenge. So there are certain norms that you must have. The other thing we're doing at the same time is trying to create very diverse environments. I mean, mm -hmm. we're all working really, really hard to bring in more people of color and to make LGBTQ students feel more welcome. So we're all working on diversity and inclusion issues. And if you're going to do that, well, you're exposing yourself. You can either do it, you can do it in ways that work beautifully and make the experience richer for people, mm -hmm. or you can do it in ways that turn people against each other and turn every misunderstanding into an opportunity for a giant fight that escalates all the way up to the president's office. And so, so the great untruths, so the three great untruths that we talk about in the book are one, what doesn't kill you makes you weaker. And so if you tell students about microaggressions, that if someone says something, if they ask you where you're from and what they mean is, oh, are, you know, is your ancestry Korean, Japanese or Chinese? You know, you could choose to feel excluded by that or you could choose to not feel excluded by that. That's the second great untruth is always trust your feelings. If you feel a little bad about something, then you were aggressive. Let's go with it. Trust it. Don't question what the motives of the person were. And then the third great untruth is the great untruth of us versus them. Namely, life is a battle between good people and evil people. So if we bring, if we create this very diverse community on campus, and then we also hit them right away in their first week, we hit them with ideas about how everything should be looked at in terms of power and privilege. Mm -hmm. And if you look at a person, you can tell what group they're in. You can tell by their race and sex and other things. And the powerful ones are the bad ones and the, and the victims are the good ones. So if you're introducing a language of division and judgment into a diverse community, I mean, that's like, you know, if, if Putin hired a team of, of uh, like an intellectual warfare team, and he said, go see what you can do to destroy American universities. Mm -hmm. You know, he, he, they might come up with very much what we do in, in some of our freshman orientation programs. It seems that in a way, all three of these are united by a misunderstanding or a deliberate overlooking of intention. Exactly. That's right. So there are a few bright lines. There are a few things that you must not do if you want to have a successful, diverse community. And so the first is... If you're going to create diversity, you're going to have a lot more misunderstandings. People, I mean, even if you're born and raised in the United States, it's hard to keep track of exactly what words to use for each group. And it changes from year to year, decade to decade. Now you have all the international students, you have students with Asperger's, you have all sorts of people. You better encourage everyone to give everyone the benefit of the doubt. You better really bend over backwards to assume the best about people. But instead... What we've learned or what an idea has been introduced from some quarters that it's not intent that matters. It's only impact. So if you tell people it doesn't matter if you meant no harm, it doesn't matter if you are or trying to be helpful, that's irrelevant. All that matters is that you made this person feel like maybe they're not a full member. Therefore, you have marginalized them. And more than that, you've committed an act of aggression. This is not a good way to create a diverse community. We need to encourage people to give each other the benefit of the doubt. So that's one bright line. It is the shift from impact, from intent to impact. Another is to say that zero tolerance, that is, if any racist thing happens, if one racist thing happens, then the place is racist. So for example, at Yale, there was a, you know, a racist episode. I mean, a woman called the police or the, you know, the campus security on a black woman that was sleeping. That was a terribly racist thing to do. And she should be ashamed of herself. And, and, uh, um, but what's the implication? Is the implication that Yale is 
therefore a racist place. Mm-hmm. Well, if you take zero as the only acceptable level, if you say if anything happens, then the place is institutionally racist, what you're saying is that until Yale, with its whatever, 20,000 people, can go a full year with zero incidents, and that includes zero misunderstandings, until it can do that, it is a systemically racist place. Well, that means that every place will be torn up. No place will pass that test. So I think in a lot of ways, we're setting ourselves up on campus for eternal conflict, bitterness, and feelings of marginalization. It seems that so much of this ends up shooting people, students, in the foot, because if you want to come to a position of a uh, way of thinking, that the whole idea behind education and debate is to understand the other side, right, or all the other sides. But by saying that you don't want to find out about it because it'll trigger you or you don't want to have certain speakers come to campus because because what? Like, what's the the logic there? And, and why why is it so accepted that, that if you hear these ideas, it's legitimizing the speaker or if you hear these ideas, it'll hurt the speaker? What's the what's the argument? So on every campus, there are a lot of people playing the victory game. And so that means if a speaker who is associated with the Trump Camp, uh, the Trump presidency were to come to campus, as happened at the University of Chicago, for example, what should the response be? And, you know, when you were in college, the response would be either don't go, either just because you don't care or because you want to protest, or go and, you know, argue with the guy or try to show that he's wrong. But the new idea on campus, once you add in the fragility, the, or the assumed fragility, students aren't really that fragile, but the claim is usually not, I will be destroyed by hearing it. The claim is usually, if we let the speaker on, he will, you know, he will attack and dehumanize, they say. They, he will deny the humanity of you know, these vulnerable groups. So it's usually, this is why we call it vindictive protectiveness, because the students aren't really fragile, but they are using it as a rhetorical technique to say, my desire to shut down that talk is altruistic. I am defending my fellow students. When in fact, yes, they're shooting themselves in the foot. I'd love to quote uh, Van Jones here. Van was just brilliant when he spoke at the University of Chicago. And David Axelrod asked him about this case where some students had protested at the talk, uh, talk by, uh, uh, I think it was Corey Lewandowski. And so Van Jones says, about safe spaces. You know, he says, you know, there, there's two different kinds. There's an idea of safety, you know, being physically safe on campus, not being subject to sexual harassment. Uh, you know, uh, he says, I'm fine with that. But there's a view now ascendant, which is a horrible view, which is that I need to be safe ideologically. I need to be safe emotionally, he says. And then here's the, here's the, the really beautiful line. He says, I don't want you to be safe ideologically. I don't want you to be safe emotionally. I want you to be strong. That's different. I'm not going to pave the jungle for you. Put on some boots and learn how to deal with adversity. I'm not going to take all the weights out of the gym. That's the whole point of the gym. This is the gym. So that is psychologically wise advice. And actually, the irony is he's actually playing the victory game in that he's trying to give advice to progressive college students and how to become effective progressive advocates when they graduate. But, you know, he's saying this, go go to these talks, argue with them. This will make you stronger. Well, this took place at the University of Chicago, which, of course, has been a kind of standout institution in this country in that the president has sort of issued a statement. Right. What is that? What has he said? 
The well, so the famous statement was by a, a dean of undergrad uh, students who wrote that uh, we don't do safe spaces and things like that. And you know, he slightly misspoke in that, of course, if the students want to have a safe space, like a place where people won't criticize or challenge each other, of course, if they want to do that off campus or in a dorm room, of course they can do that. They've got um, First Amendment rights of free association. What he meant, what he clearly meant, was that our classrooms are not safe spaces. Our classrooms are not places where if you have your feelings hurt, you have grounds for an objection and you can make the other person stop. In other words, and obviously we're not talking about insulting and yelling racist slurs. We're talking about, you know, if you have a debate about immigration or inequality or gender, anything else, and someone's offended, well, that's the gym is what they're saying. So Chicago has unique cultural and moral resources. Chicago, I did my postdoc there, and they are so proud of their intellectual climate. It really is wonderful. They were proud of being ranked the worst party school in America. So Chicago really was able to get out in front on this and say, look, we're all about intellectual debate. We're not going to change. This seems to be an issue that really transcends, despite the, what you've called the us versus them mentality, the sort of left-right divide. And that I've heard from many liberal professors that, you know, that that they feel like they're in a in a very difficult situation because it goes against sort of what is liberal philosophy, which is being open to ideas. And that, you know, I've heard from some individual professors saying that they've make a statement at the beginning of the class saying, if you, if you, if being triggered is an issue for you, if you're worried about that, if you're concerned, then you shouldn't take this class because there are readings in here that are meant to be provocative. And I'm curious if there's any kind of organized movement or if this is beginning to happen where professors or deans or College presidents are starting to say, you know, this has gone too far. Yes, that is definitely beginning to happen. So I co-founded an organization called Heterodox Academy in September of 2015. It had nothing to do with the Atlantic article, had nothing to do with student protests because there weren't any at that time. It was just a concern I had when I noticed that my own discipline in social psychology had gone from leaning left to being essentially entirely on the left. I could only find one conservative social psychologist in the entire field. So I gave a talk on this, on how this actually makes it hard for us to do our research. I'm extremely concerned with process. It's only if we have a good process that we have reliable results. And so I wrote up a paper on this with some other social psychologists, and then we found uh, a law professor contacted us. He said the same problem happens in the legal academy. A sociologist said the same thing in sociology. So um, Heterodox Academy, if you go to heterodoxacademy.org, we now have 2,000 professors, and it's actually evenly balanced. We have about 20% on the left, 20% on the right, and then most are centrist, libertarian, or they don't fit in any box. It's professors who say, you know what, we actually need viewpoint diversity. We need to be able to challenge each other. We need to welcome people who think differently. So so we are we are the center of that movement to reestablish what what I would call, and I think what, based on your description, I would call liberal values, not left-right, but the liberal philosophy is that we're trying to create a state um, that allows maximum freedom for people to do, to live the lives that they want. Actually, I learned, uh, I learned my liberalism from Anthony Appiah when I, did a, I was a visiting professor at, uh, at Princeton in his area. So all of us, whether we're on the left or the right, I, pretty much all of us um, hold to a liberal ideal. And what's happening, unfortunately, is that 
is that there are some ideas spreading among young people especially that can best be described as illiberal. Now, they're compassionate. They're, they're done in the service of a good, namely a, a particular conception of inclusion, which I think is unworkable and ultimately harmful, but they are pursuing moral goods as they see them. And this is what motivates many young people to say, you can't wear that because that's cultural appropriation. You can't say that because that's offensive to somebody that I know. You can't eat that. You must stay in your lane. If you're an artist, you can't paint that. And so there is a rise of illiberalism, which I think is deeply disturbing to professors on the right and on the left. All right. Well, lots to think about as professors and students return to campus this month. Jonathan, thank you so much for being here. My pleasure, Pamela. Jonathan Haidt is the co-author, along with Greg Lukianoff, of The Coddling of the American Mind, How Good Intentions and Bad Ideas Are Setting Up a Generation for Failure. This is John Williams, and I'm joined now by The Times' Alexandra Alter, who has news from the publishing world. Hey, Alexandra. Hey, John. So this week you wrote a story that was kind of a follow-up about news that broke earlier this summer. Yes, that's uh, that's right. So in July, Barnes & Noble took a really surprising action against its CEO, Demos Parneros. He was abruptly fired for unspecified violations of company policy, and they put out a really strange press release right before the holiday at 5 p.m., hmm. clearly hoping to bury this news. And, of course, everyone was somewhat surprised by this. Publishers and investors were pretty alarmed because he was the fourth CEO to leave the position in five years. They've had a lot of instability at the yeah. top, and the company is really struggling right now. So we had a ton of questions about why he was let go, as publishers and investors did, and very little came out afterwards until this week when Mr. Parneros filed a lawsuit against Barnes & Noble, claiming that there had been a breach of contract and also claiming defamation of character because he claims that there was this perception after his firing that he had done something, you know, he was fired without severance. It was so abrupt. There was this perception and a lot of the coverage sort of speculated that maybe there was some kind of harassment because they were clear that there weren't financial violations. It's a blistering lawsuit against the company, and it really takes aim at Lynn Riggio, the company's founder and chairman, he reveals all these things that Mr. Riggio apparently said about other executives, all these unflattering things and claims mm-hmm. that Mr. Riggio turned against him as CEO after another book retailer made an offer to buy Barnes & Noble and later withdrew it. So Barnes & Noble is disputing these claims. They're saying that this complaint is full of lies from a gr- disgruntled employee, but it's certainly not doing much to restore people's confidence in the future of the company. And it's most likely going to make it very difficult for them to recruit another chief executive. So this was sort of almost preemptive, right? Because Barnes & Noble hadn't said anything more specific about why he had been fired. That's exactly right. And there were a lot of questions about that. And in this complaint, he lays out exactly what the reasons that they gave him were, which is that he had what he claims was an innocuous, less than five-minute conversation with an executive assistant um, where he discussed vacationing in Quebec. And another time they compared heights to see who was taller. And this apparently made the executive assistant uncomfortable. He apologized for that, according to his complaint, and everything was fine. Was the company calling it something as serious as sexual harassment? Yes, they they were. were. And and, and when he had the meeting... According to him. Yes, according to him. In the the meeting in which he was told that he was fired, they gave him the reason that he had violated the sexual harassment policy and that he had also 
behaved unprofessionally towards another executive at the company, a male executive who he had apparently bullied or made feel uncomfortable in other ways. Have we heard back from the company at all since the lawsuit was filed? Yes, they pretty quickly put out a statement and they defended Mr. Riggio's conduct and called the allegations in the complaint, quote, replete with lies and mischaracterizations. And their statement called Mr. Parneros, quote, someone who, instead of accepting responsibility for blatantly inappropriate behavior, is lashing out against a former employer. So the company is basically saying that it was inappropriate behavior. That was mostly the reason why he was fired. That is exactly what they're saying. So, yeah, I mean, he's willing to drag this all out in public, I think, in part because the way that he was fired and the perception that left made him... It made it incredibly difficult for him to find another position elsewhere. Moreover, he notes in his complaint that he wasn't given the severance that he was expected to get, The you know, the severance that other executives had gotten. Which was a pretty gotten. penny. Exactly. Millions of dollars. Yeah. And, you know, I think moreover, the, the really damaging thing about this complaint is that it makes uh, now public something that people have discussed kind of privately, which is that there's this perception that Mr. Riggio, while he's not the CEO, still has the reins to the company and is controlling the company and making major decisions and maybe not giving the chief executives that he hires full reign and and the ability to sort of guide the company. Well, given the legal proceedings, I'm sure that this is not the last we'll talk about this with you. No, I think there's definitely more shoes to drop. And of course, there's the overarching question about the future of the company. You know, their stock price has fallen 60% in the last three years. They've closed more than 150 stores. And so I think people are really concerned in the publishing and literary world too, because they're such a vital outlet for for publishers. Yeah. And it seems just so odd that as sort of independent stores seem to be thriving, at least in general, there's a sense of that in the culture that this one big corporate bookseller is struggling. Right. Exactly. You know, print sales are up and independents are doing well. So everyone is really hoping that Barnes & Noble can turn itself around as well. All right. Well, we'll follow up with you soon. Yes. Hopefully I'll have better news next time. (laughs) Thanks, Alexandra. Thanks, John. Here now to talk about what we're reading this week are three of my colleagues, Ramon Alam, Lovia Gayarki, and Emily Aiken. Hi, guys. Hi. Hi. All right, let's start with, let's see, Ramon. Okay. You have no book in front of you. <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I, didn't bring, I didn't bring the book into the room with me, but I have had a really good run of reading, and I recently read Patrick Modiano for the first time. I picked up a book called So You Don't Get Lost in the Neighborhood, and I was so charmed by it, I actually made you read it also. <laughs> You made me. <laughs> um, and uh, Modiano won the Nobel Prize in 2015, 2014, and was not someone I had ever read before or someone even I had heard of. And when I when I learned about his receiving the prize, I saw, oh, he's like a tall, handsome Frenchman of a certain age who writes mostly about the Second World War. And it just felt like a parody of the kind of person who would win the Nobel Prize. You fell immediately asleep. <laughs> Basically. <laughs> and how foolish I was because actually I found that book and the book Dora Bruder, which I'm reading right now, to be really remarkable. They're very slender, really, really rich books about memory and history and they both are engaged with the Second World War, but they're not about the war. They're sort of about the tra- the psychic trauma of, you know, that has been visited on on 
Modiano and his father's generation, but also contemporary France. It's just their books are really beautiful. And I am reading them in English, not in French, because I'm not Emily. <laughs> but on a sentence level in those translations, they're really lovely. They're really lovely books. What are they? Oh, I mean, do they play out like mysteries? Or? So, so You Don't Get Lost in the Neighborhood does begin as a mystery. Um, a writer... It's, it's, I believe it's told in first person. This writer has lost a, an address book and somebody telephones him and says, I found your address book. And then it seems like it's going to be this sort of blackmail plot. But in fact, it turns out to have very little to do with this missing agenda. And it turns into the story of him kind of half remembering a woman who he maybe knew who lived in a neighborhood nearby where these people lived who have found his address book. And it's in summary, it sounds so deranged, but it's really charming. And Dora Bruder, the book that I'm reading now, has a similar kind of sleight of hand. The writer sees a notice in the newspaper in the 1950s about a missing teenage girl. And then he he recounts how he lived near where she lived in Paris in the 1990s. Or no, in the 1970s. He's writing in the 1990s. (laughs) And he sort of tracks this weird murky progression of time through this his pursuit of this one figure who actually seemingly existed because there are photographs of her in the text but it is a book that is published as a work of fiction so it's just Hmm. an unclassifiable oddity i'm not done yet so i don't know if he actually finds dora bruder which is the name of this missing teenager i'll be curious to know because the book that you forced me uh (laughs) chained me to my desk and made me read the mystery which seems so potent in the beginning of the book it's a very short book i think i read it in you know an hour and a half yeah probably just sort of boils away by the end of the book it's like it's evaporated yeah and i i I questioned my own sanity a little bit for the hour or so after I finished the book thinking, did I miss some enormous thing that tied together the mystery or did he just completely abandon it as yeah. if it didn't start that way? I, I think the mystery is ultimately of little interest to him. And what is of interest to him is this half remembered incident with this woman who maybe lived at this address nearby this place. I mean, it really, again, in summary, it sounds so deranged, but it has this really enchanting quality. I mean, you stuck with it for that 90 well, minutes, right? It's smoothly <laughs> written. There's a very, it's very easy to read yeah. in a way. Yeah. And I mean, it's, and it is kind of lovely. It, it's slightly deranged in the sense that it, you know, the, the sanity questioning thing. Lovia, what about you? I'm rereading Another Country by James Baldwin, which I'm sure comes to a shock to nobody who knows me. (laughs) But it was published in 1962, and I think it's one of Baldwin's most difficult novels, especially for him to complete. So he wrote it in New York, Paris, and then finished it in Istanbul. And I think a part of the reason why it was so difficult is because it's a book that really is more allegorical than anything. And I think it has less to do with the characters and more to do with what they represent, which in this case is race, sexuality, love, and depression, suicide. And so the main character of the book, Rufus, the the book opens with Rufus jumping off of the George Washington Bridge and killing himself. And that brings together his best friend, his sister, and sort of these vague people that he knows from living as a jazz player. And the book sort of follows how these people become closer because of the death of Rufus. And I was reading, I was doing a little research, and I was reading our original review of it, which was done by Paul Goodman. And he really didn't like it. And I'm actually going to read the last graph because it is so harsh. He says, I'm judging by a high standard, but otherwise, why bother? In the nature of the case, more serious books get more serious criticism. My guess is that another country has more substance than most books that receive highly respectful reviews. It is mediocre. It is unworthy of its author's lovely abilities. Given his awareness, which he cannot escape, he must write something more poetic and surprising. 
it's sort of scary to say that I disagree with someone who is such a prolific critic, but I disagree with him so heavily. I think when you come to another country as just a book about some people living in Greenwich Village, it's sort of disappointing because Baldwin doesn't really, you know, flesh out his characters and you kind of wonder, okay, like Ida, for example, who's Rufus' sister is a waitress, but what does she do? She never goes to work. Like, how are these people living in this city during this time? But I think if you think of it more as a fictional exploration of everything that Baldwin has written about in his nonfiction, which is sort of how love is going to unmask race relations and how Americans need to come together and look beyond their hatred to really understand why and where it comes from, then it's really fascinating. So I read it last year and I'm rereading it again just because I think that it's a really excellent work and it really, I think the themes obviously really, it really interests me. Um, and obviously Baldwin's a great writer and so it often reminds me that writing is good and we should think about words. Take that, Paul Goodman. Yeah. Well, I mean, in Paul Goodman's defense, I think it's, you know, it's one thing to look at a book in the context it was published and it's yes. one thing to look at James Baldwin and what he became in the years since his death. Yeah, and, and we were actually talking about, Ruman and I were talking about it earlier, about how cinematic it reads. So Barry Jenkins, if you're listening, <laughs> this is your next film. Uh, Emily, lovely. do you have something adaptable for us? Um, possibly, yes. I, I want to talk about two books, one very recent, the other um, many decades old. And the, the contemporary book is Sabrina, which is a graphic novel by Nick Dernasso. I think I'm pronouncing his name right. So if I can contribute one thing, maybe it's just the pronunciation of his last name. <laughs> and it's a name we need to know because this graphic novel is getting a lot of buzz. Zadie Smith has sung its praises and it was recently long listed for the Booker Prize. So the first thing I, I wanted to note about it is just how visually and narratively it defies conventions. It's not a spoiler to say it's ostensibly an account of a terrible crime and its aftermath. It's it, The crime is a murder. But the story of the murder and the emotional devastation of the people close to the victim is completely derailed, if you will. It's, it's encroached on, even hijacked the entire narrative by these disembodied voices that come to dominate the book. And these are the voices of talk radio, of internet chat rooms, of cable news, of social media. Of the New York Times Book Review podcast. <laughs> now the New York Times Book Review. Until the narrative is completely overtaken by wild conspiracy theories and, and rumors. And, and these eruptions and intrusions are so, shown to be just as murderous, if you will, just as, as destructive as the murder itself. So emotional intimacy in this book between people who are grieving a terrible trauma, but also intimacy in general is so shown to be impossible. It's a very bleak read. And visually, the novel is also quite unusual. It's filled with images of desolation. So characters are typically depicted alone in an empty or virtually empty room at the mercy of these disembodied voices coming at them from various electronic devices. Okay. <laughs> um, you read this so, on your vacation, <laughs> right, Emily? I mean, um, yeah, and the palette, the palette of the of the novel is is eggplant to gray. It's sort of <laughs> the color of the glowing screen, if you will. Wow. So it's it's a very disorienting but completely engrossing and memorable read. Well, it's funny that it's so bleak. I mean, I think Lovia and I. It was you, right? We we were reading an interview with the author. I think it, maybe it was Ruman or no. No. We have I so many like colleagues that yeah. they share things with me. Um, but there was an interview with the author, I think on vulture.com. Yes, I think so. And it was the most, I mean, it's almost a parody of a bleak, depressed person. He, I mean, they asked him about the Booker Prize. And he's like, 
uh, I don't know. I don't really know. I really, you know, I don't like attention. <laughs> he, he goes on to say that he tried to retract the book as soon yeah. as he was really? finished with it. Wow. He said, I canceled it definitively. I wow. didn't like it. He was pulled coerced back to the table. He did a revision. He tolerates it. But yeah. basically, it's left him very discouraged. It's not this kind of performative self-deprecation where it's like, no. oh, mm-hmm. I mean, he seems legitimately both self-loathing and also like weighed down really by the disappointed in the final narrative. product of the book. <laughs> Yes, it's not a polemic. I should I should make that really clear. I mean, it has a, a sort of an aura of, of a documentary um, mm-hmm. that he's documenting life, the social conditions of our country, and what he's found is is that's bleak. Is bleak. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh my god. Unsurprisingly, what what else do you have for us? Um, I just wanted to talk a little bit about Shirley Hazard today because I also recently read her first novel, Shirley Hazard, being the Australian novelist, recently deceased, who wrote. Uh, the Transit of Venus. Her first novel was called The Evening of the Holiday. It's a small novel, short, and in, in many ways, unlike Sabrina, it's a conventional book. It's a conventionally structured, it's a conventional story. It's a romance. And you could even add that the sexual politics are conventional. It's about a young English woman who goes on holiday to Italy, where she is slowly but ir- irrevocably seduced by an older, gallant Italian man, a divorcee. But you read Hazard not for the plot, although she is an, a brilliant constructor of plots. Her, her books turn out to be so artfully constructed. But you read her for the sentences. I cannot think of a more elegant writer. To me, she personifies the word exquisite. So you read her for the atmosphere, for the smells and the sounds, the cypress trees here, the nightingales, the reverberating bell in the bell tower, the marble tiles. But it's also the inner landscapes, the kind of minute, almost ineffable gestures and impulses that comprise human interaction that she's just so brilliant at registering. And in this sense, I I think she's truly the heir to Henry James. I, I mean, think she's she, just uh, such a treat. I don't disagree. And I, after she died, I was very hopeful that there was an archive of five unpublished novels or something sitting on a desk somewhere because those books are. She doesn't have a huge body of work, but everything that I've read is has an incredible. Air of I mean, The Transit yeah. of Venus is maybe a perfect it novel. Is. You know, on, on a much more superficial level, I just want to note you have this great kind of slightly cheesy old Penguin paperback edition <laughs> of the Evening of the Holiday because I feel like Transit of Venus and the Great uh, the Great Fire, the Great Fire, yeah. More recent work, yeah, both have these kind of very beautiful yes. modern covers. Yeah, and, and this is. Uh, <laughs> This is what happened when you were a woman novelist in 1966. Yeah, for sure. But this is highly sophisticated stuff. And she was (laughs) was very good when writing about Italy. Like it was very evocative, you know. John was just in Europe himself. What did you read when you were on your vacation? I was in Spain for a little more than a week, mostly in Barcelona and, and surrounding areas. Which was just, I'm, I'm still sort of stunned that I'm back. No offense. <laughs> but None taken, the I most guess. ridiculous thing, I think I talked about this briefly on the podcast before I left. I sort of, I'm always an overambitious book packer, but I often do get through a couple of things, especially, you know, in a week away. I think I packed, you know, approximately 2,000 pages of Barcelona <laughs> cultural history and political history, a book on the Spanish Civil War, a couple of novels. I, I probably had nine or 10 books in my suitcase. And would and never I, have left your hotel room. I, yeah. think, I think I read maybe 15 pages on the plane coming back. And that was the sum total of my <laughs> for the trip other than menus. But now that I'm back, I'm, I'm almost done with a book that a colleague here highly recommended before I left, which is called Nada by Carmen Laforette. It's a novel 
from 1945, published, I realized today, when Lafayette was 23, which <laughs> made me slightly nauseous. Uh, Ramon tweeted today something funny about an author bio saying they were born in 1995, which made you sick. And that guys. actually, that person is 23. Wow. So maybe they just published yeah. an incredible novel like this one. Feeling um, some ageist hate here. It was... <laughs> It's about a, a girl named Andrea who moves to Barcelona from the countryside when she's 18. She's been orphaned and she goes back to the family house to study in Barcelona in the early 1940s, soon after the Civil War. And what she finds there is her sort of formerly glamorous family uh, at loose ends with a lot of hatred between uncles of hers, you know, brothers who are at each other's throats all the time and screaming at each other's wives and partners about how disgusting they are. And it's just really overheated. And the house is kind of in disrepair and there's furniture stacked everywhere and it's gloomy. And and yet she makes friends. She goes to school. It takes a little while to get into the book. I would say maybe 30 pages or so in. I was still feeling a bit lost in its register. And then it just completely clicked. And now I'm really feeling downhill with it. I'm, I'm just kind of desperate what to get back to it What about the title, John? Is there... Heavy irony there or? Well, not a, you know, it is about, it's really about how much people have lost. This family has lost a lot monetarily, status wise. It's about her not having parents. There's, there is a sense of loss at the heart of it, but it's not at all a dark book. And actually the one thing I want to quote is not from the book, but it's from an essay that Fernanda Eberstadt, who's a frequent contributor to the book review wrote in 2007, which I think is when this book was reissued by modern Library Classics with a very brief introduction by Mario Vargasiosa. And she wrote, this I think sums it up. It, it's not, there are a lot of characters in the book, so it's not easy to sum up, but this I think does a good job. She wrote, Nada depicts on the one hand the sordid collapse of a family whose fratricidal hatreds mirror those of the Civil War, and on the other hand, the struggle of its youngest member for simple freedom. What gives the novel its unlikely freshness is the contrast between the melodramas to which Andrea is witness and the humorous restraint of her narration. While the old folks writhe in a hell of their own making, Andrea stalwartly goes about the business of being young. So... That's that's, nice. that's an essay that's that I'll nice. link yeah. to on our website. I just want to remind everyone because we get this question sometimes that we go through these semi-quickly and there's always a page on our website that corresponds to the podcast where we list the books we've talked about that week with links to either reviews or essays about them for more information. And that's at nytimes.com slash books. So with that little public service, and I'll wrap up this week. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. Thank you. Remember, there's more at nytimes.com slash books, and you can always write to us at books at nytimes.com. I write back. The Book Review Podcast is produced by Pedro Rosado from Headstepper Media with the great help of my colleague, John Williams. Thanks for listening. For The New York Times, I'm Pamela Paul.